ask you to uh, open up with me, if you can, to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, and uh, if you're visiting with us, you can find that on page 288 in your pew Bible. Let me open up with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, and Lord, how sweet it is to gather together in worship. You are God, and we are mere creatures. What grace to be able to come together as a body, and by faith behold your glory in the person of Christ, and by your spirit to lift up our hearts and our voices and our minds in honor and worship to you. Father, as we give our time now to the study of your word, we pray that you would be pleased to not only still our hearts and open our ears, soften our hearts and focus our minds. Lord, that you would convict us of sin. Father, that most importantly, you would draw us to cling to and believe in and love Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 8 in a little bit. But before we do, I wanted to, as a kind of reminder and refresher, reorient ourselves to what we've been studying in the past couple of weeks. If, if you're visiting with us this morning, you've kind of jumped in on a short sermon series we're doing this summer. This morning's sermon in particular is a bit peculiar. I say peculiar because it's not really the kind of preaching you'd normally hear here at uh, Greenbelt Baptist Church. Normally our sermons are expositional. We, we work our way through entire books of the Bible verse by verse where the main point of each sermon is found in the main point of any given passage we're studying. So, for example, since November, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and every sermon seeks to examine and apply each successive passage in Genesis that we're working through. Two weeks ago, we took a break from Genesis, and one of our elders, Keith Kaufman, has been leading us through a study of our corporate worship, examining what we do in this time, in our public worship together, those ordinary means of grace which are integral to Christian worship. So two weeks ago, Keith helped us see why we gather on Sunday mornings. Looking at Hebrews chapter 10, we saw that Christians are co commanded to meet together in worship and to fellowship together in the presence of God. And then last week, we saw why Christians partake of the Lord's Supper and the very real grace that we're nourished by in the Lord's Supper. This morning, I've been tasked with helping us to think through corporate prayer. What is corporate prayer? And again, if you're visiting with us this morning, this, this isn't the normal GBC sermon. Uh, I'll seek to exposit and apply what we see in 1 Kings 8 in a little bit. That's the passage that Keith assigned to me. Uh, it's a great passage, but, but I'm also really driven here by this topic of corporate prayer. And I, I, I want you to think somewhat holistically about prayer in our Lord's Day services. So, what is abnormal for me 
I'll be having us look at a number of different passages this morning. Keep uh, a kind of bookmark there in 1 Kings chapter 8, but keep your fingers nimble if you want to turn to different passages that I'm going to be bringing up. And listen, I think this is really probably the most helpful thing I could be saying to you right now. I'm going to be going quickly through a number of passages. Uh, What I think might best serve you in this time is that maybe if you just jot them down quickly as a reference so you don't get lost in trying to find the passage, make sure you're listening. Listen to, to what I'm reading. I'll read the passage. So, so what's, what's going on, you can write down that passage reference later and, and perhaps go back this afternoon to read it more closely. Uh, listening to sermons takes work, and I'm, I'm just warning you now, this is going to take a little bit more work. First, the kind of classic text on what we've been studying in this sermon series, you know, why we do what we do in our worship services. The historically go-to passage is Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Acts 2, 42. And it's, it's there right after Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, and, and through Peter's preaching, over 3,000 people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And they all join this, this new Christian church established in Jerusalem. And so here's this kind of... First church in Acts chapter 2. First Baptist of Jerusalem. You know they were First Baptist of Jerusalem probably. And the Holy Spirit has filled them and, and, and he's leading them. And so what do we see the church do? What does the Spirit of God lead them to do as a church? Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's a simple verse, but really a great one because it gives us this kind of paradigm, a a spirit-inspired template for what the church should look like when it gathers. They devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching. That is of first importance. They they devoted to the preaching of God's word. And, And they fellowshiped. They gathered together to worship and to love God and to love one another as a response of their love to God. They gave themselves to the breaking of bread. What aspect of corporate worship might that be describing? Communion, the Lord's Supper. And then notice the verse ends by saying that they devoted themselves to the prayers. It's a fascinating use of the article, the prayers, signifying that there were these ordered, set prayers. It wasn't just kind of this organic, free-for-all kind of praying. No, they, the gathered church, was devoted to the prayers. So what we're dealing with is prayer, this corporate prayer. What is it that makes corporate prayer distinct? Most of us tend to think about prayer in terms of a solitary activity, and of course much of our prayer life should be that. Not only do we see Jesus throughout his ministry withdrawing from others for the specific purpose of praying alone, But he also teaches us explicitly that when we pray, we're to go into our rooms, close the door, and pray to our Father in heaven. Private, personal prayer is essential to the Christian life, but private, personal prayer is not sufficient alone. No, as Jesus reminds us in Matthew 18, speaking of Christians gathering together as a local body, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask, It will be done for you by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. You see, the balance of Christian prayer on the one hand holds private prayer firmly, but on the other hand, corporate prayer as well. If I could be honest, I'm more and more convinced and inclined to think that the more we take seriously our corporate prayer, the more we'll actually enjoy and love and be better at our private prayer. Now think with me first about what corporate prayer is. What is corporate prayer? Well, this sounds a bit obvious, but because the Lord's Day worship service is a public service, Paul is quite clear in 1 Corinthians 14 that outsiders, unbelievers, were not only present, but were often welcome at Christian services in the early church. And so since these are public services, the prayer in those services are of necessity to be public prayers. They will sound and feel different from our private prayer life. There will inevitably be a focus upon the edification of everyone present. Obviously, they will be prayers that are audible, whereas more often than not, our private prayers are silent. No, corporate prayer will be offered in a way that is intelligible so that every person present can find blessing in what is being prayed. In fact, unlike private prayer where God alone is sought in the privacy of the prayer closet, in corporate prayer, there are two audiences, one on earth and one in heaven. This is exactly the point the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 through 19. Again, if you're taking notes, that's 1 Corinthians 14, 14 through 19. If one prays in the Spirit, says Paul, so that the person praying cannot be understood, the prayer may be a sincere expression of thanksgiving, but, and here's the crucial point, the other people present will not be edified. That's the point of verse 17. Better are five intelligible words, says Paul, that can instruct others than 10,000 words spoken in tongues. In other words, public corporate prayer, while addressed to God, is for public edification and instruction. Which means, this is a bit of a rabbit trail and also a bit appropriate. It needs to be mentioned here that within the regular worship of our Lord's Day service, when public prayer is offered from up front, from the pulpit, because there is a major aspect of edification and teaching in the prayer, well, this is why we usually only have qualified men come up to lead in prayer. We're taking Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy 2, where in the context of teaching about how the church's worship service should go and about who should lead in prayer, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.8 that I desire that in every place, that is in every place where public worship is held, that men should pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then to clarify the point, he says this is something that men, men who ought to be elders, ought to be doing. Now, This in no way means that when we gather together for prayer in our evening prayer service or in our small groups or in our Bible studies or as friends meeting over coffee at Starbucks that women ought not to pray if there's a man around. Neither does it mean that gifted women can never teach men anything. No, Lord willing, Joy Hall will come back in the fall, I hope and pray, and teach a more kind of longer exposition of what it means to think about abortion from a Christian point of view. 
we asked Paul, uh, uh, Joy to come up this morning and give an uh, explanation of what she's doing from uh, uh, the pregnancy clinic. And she understood and we understood that she was coming underneath the authority of elders and she was not teaching but just giving a biblical uh, um, uh, foundation for what the pregnancy clinic does. And so underneath the authority of the elders, she and we understood that she's not teaching and preaching from authority. And we gladly have her back to come and, uh, and help us understand abortion from a Christian worldview. Now, women should pray out loud. And if you come back this evening at 6 p.m., you will hear many of our women praying beautifully and loudly. But when it comes to leading the congregation from a standpoint of authoritative corporate prayer, prayer where there will inevitably be an aspect of teaching and edifying in the prayer, well, then we think in order to be obedient to Scripture, only men should pray. If you'd like to think more about this later this afternoon, you should not only read 1 Timothy 2, but here's two other verses that are very clear in this. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 through 36, and 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 through 6. And you can ask me about that afterwards. Again, none of this should lead us to undervalue or demean in any way the commendations we see throughout the scriptures of the prayers offered by many women like Hannah and Anna, or those women in 1 Timothy 5, 5, who are said to have continued in prayers and supplications night and day. The presence of women at prayer meetings and our public gatherings of worship is, to say the least, vital to our worship as the body of Christ. And it's there in our gathered worship where we all join together in prayer, even though Scripture sets only one person to lead those prayers. So we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that the apostles and all the church were devoting themselves to prayer with one accord, and then Luke, the author of Acts, even adds there in verse 14 that they were praying together with the women and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's an obvious, explicit honor given to the presence of faithful women who were praying. And yet we still see in Acts chapter 1, especially verses 24 and 25, is that while it is said they all prayed, that is the whole church, it was evident that only one of the apostles was leading in prayer. So as he audibly led the congregation... The rest of the church silently prayed along with how he led. And this is what it meant to pray with one accord. This is what we mean by corporate prayer. It's that vital aspect of worship which God's people collectively offer up to God in their local worship. Consider how prayer weaves like a silver thread throughout redemptive history, tying the worship of God's people together throughout the Bible. And God's redemptive purposes... The way of redemption will always be established through a mediator. God saves through a mediator. God always uses a mediator to save his people, and this path of redemption is never intended for lone, vainglorious explorers, right? Men and women are redeemed to travel as fellow pilgrims together, locked arm in arm, joined together both for the sake of helping one another and for the sake of being helped by one another in this fallen world. So we see Noah intercede between God and the people. Later, Abraham intercedes on behalf of his family members. And it's this idea of intercession which gives life to the very idea of corporate prayer. Corporate prayer exists because God is determined to grant his shalom-restoring covenants through a mediator to a people. In Exodus, the people collectively groan, chapter 2, verse 23, in prayer. 
we see a detailed account of what Moses, together with the people, prayed to Yahweh in Exodus 15, right after the Lord delivered them from Egypt. Here, Moses leads the congregation of redeemed Jews in prayer of thanksgiving. Or consider Moses' act of intercession in Exodus 32, where he prays to God for the people when Yahweh threatened to destroy them entirely. He gives a prayer of confession. Moses appeals to the fact that God has, has tied his name to his people, thereby binding his glory before the onlooking nations. And he requests that because of God's covenant faithfulness, his people would not perish but find salvation. And so he confesses in corporate prayer. We could read Leviticus 16, where the high priest is instructed to pray to what amounts to a representative prayer, confessing the sins of all the people. Time would fail us if we were to look at all the psalms written, specifically the psalms of ascent, Psalm 120 to 134, which would be read as prayer. And then, and then the congregation would respond out of that led prayer by singing the actual psalm as they ascended up to Jerusalem. Joshua intercedes for the people when Achan sins in Joshua 7. Samuel intercedes for the nation when they want a king in 1 Samuel 8. Ezra's prayer in Ezra 10 appears to result in corporate repentance, a, a legitimate revival of the people of God, which comes as a result of corporate prayer. Perhaps there's no more moving, at least to me, more moving example of corporate prayer to be found in the Bible than that remarkable instance in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You can turn there, actually. Revelation, uh, specifically chapter 8 and the first five verses. Revelation 8, 1 through 5. This is the chapter in Revelation where the, the seventh seal is opened by the Lamb. And the text indicates, there you can, you can see it in chapter 8, verse 1. The text says that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The silence is staggering. When you consider what came just before in chapter 7, if you look just before in chapter 7, we're told that an untold multitude, which no one could number, cried out with a loud voice, singing, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's loud. It's magnificent. Heaven is reverberating with the praise of all the saints in glory. But now in chapter 8, verse 1, it's as if God raises his hand and says, the colossal noise of chapter 7 is replaced by total silence. All of heaven is fixed in anticipation of what's about to happen. The answer comes in verse 3 where an angel is given a golden censer filled with incense and the prayers of the saints. In fact, incense in the Bible is often associated with prayers. It's a kind of physical representation in the Old Testament of our prayers ascending up into the heavens. And this angel, he, he, he carries this censer filled with incense, filled with the prayers of God's people, and he brings it to God. So what we see is God silencing all of heaven, symbolically showing that when prayer is offered up to God, everything stops. All of heaven stands silent, and the command of God so that rapt attention can be given to the church's corporate prayer. The prayers of God's people are supremely important. They're precious to God. And friends, our corporate prayer ought to be precious to us. God concentrates all of heaven's attention upon the corporate cries of his people. Look, in a fallen world that 
increasingly rages and clamors and screams for our attention, screams for our souls, a world that roars and shrieks for the church to disappear. In the midst of that kind of world, what which looks upon our small gathering on a Sunday morning and, uh, and our solemn and simple prayers as insignificant, as a silly waste of time. In that kind of world, friends, I want to suggest to you, in view of how God silences heaven when we pray, that our corporate prayer is the most significant event taking place in all the universe. Where are the most important decisions being made? When we look around us, where do we see raw, influential power? Friends, it's not in the halls of Congress. It's not in the decisions made by the United Nations. It's not in the Pentagon. It's not in the board meetings of CNN or Fox News. It's not behind the CEO desk of Facebook or Amazon or Apple. Now, I hope you realize, because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us upon the cross, and because of the Holy Spirit that now dwells within our midst, And because of the sovereign God we call our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be his name. Friends, there is nothing more powerful or more influential than when we gather to pray. If two of you on earth agree about anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered, there I am with him. Church, do you believe that? This practice of corporate prayer is a unique and necessary duty of the people of God. The prayers of the saints before an attentive and holy God move the course of the world. The prayer of a gathered church is the most potent, the most disturbing, the most revolutionary, the most terrifying power that the world will ever know. Oh, that we would believe what God has promised about our prayer. It was through prayer that the Spirit of God came upon the church in tongues of fire, It was corporate prayer that broke the chains and opened the prison gates, releasing the Apostle Peter and later the Apostle Paul. It's through prayer that Satan falls like lightning to the ground and ceases from tempting Christians, fleeing away with his tail tucked between his legs. It's through prayer that the voice and message of the gospel thunders through the dark clouds of unreached people groups. Friends, do you believe what God has promised us about prayer? All right, we can turn now to 1 Kings 8. Keith is over there wondering, when is he going to get to my assigned text? And I'm about to get in trouble for not handling it, so let's do that. 1 Kings 8 really is a great passage to study because it offers us one of the best examples of corporate prayer in all the Bible. It may, in fact, be the longest prayer in the Bible, just beating out John 17, uh, the Lord's high priestly prayer. And as you read through it, you see the, the way in which it's structured and how Solomon prays, the different components to a good corporate prayer. The context of chapter 8 is that Israel, underneath Solomon's leadership, has just completed the building of the temple. And, and as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple, we read about the manifestation of God's presence. That's really the central theme behind this whole chapter. The covenant presence of God with his people. Verses 22 through 53, we read what really is this impressive corporate prayer, a prayer of dedication. See that there in verse 22? Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he prayed, O Lord, 
God of Israel, there is no God like you. Now, what's, what's so notable about this prayer, what we find to be the kind of backbone that gives structure and support to this whole prayer is that Solomon is mentally going back to the covenant that God had made with Moses and his people at Sinai. And what he's essentially saying is, God, what you said with your mouth at Mount Sinai, would you now display with your right hand? What you promised, oh, would you now fulfill? In other words, he's not just getting up there and thinking, eh, what do I pray about now? He's not making up his prayer on the spot. No, he goes back to the scriptures. He goes back to God's promised word in Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And he's seeing there the covenant pattern in which God has related to his people. He's praying out of the word of God. And all good corporate prayer is good corporate prayer, which prays out of the promises of God's word and helps us understand better in that prayer what God is saying in his word. The covenant pattern that Solomon reads in Deuteronomy is really this. God gave a commitment to his people. He he calls them to faith. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And he warned his people back in Deuteronomy 28. He warns them against disobedience. I've set before you the way of life and the way of death. So choose this day the way of life, says Yahweh to Israel. Now, God had unreservedly committed himself in a covenant relationship to this people. But the implications of that covenant relationship... The outworking of it depended upon how the people responded to God's covenant love, grace, and faithfulness. If they responded with faith, they responded with obedience, then they would be the recipients of God's covenant blessings. But if they turned away, and if they responded in disobedience, then they entered not into the covenant blessings of God, but would instead experience the covenant curses of God. And so what Solomon does then in his prayer is is he's up in the pulpit and he's reading Deuteronomy and he's going to God in prayer now on behalf of the people. And he leads them in corporate prayer and says, God, oh, give us the grace to make this covenant relationship work. Even if we do fail, or rather, when we do fail, oh, would you be pleased to restore us back to yourself and to keep the covenant promise you made for your name's sake. So if we could quickly outline what we're seeing here in the prayer. Look down there at 1 Kings 8 and verses 22 through 24. There we see Solomon praise God for his covenant faithfulness. Then in verses 25 through 26, he petitions God for his covenant steadfastness. In verses 27 through 30, Solomon expresses his desire for God's covenant presence. And then finally, in that large section, verses 31 through 53, we see in a, in a series of seven appeals, Solomon pray for God's covenant grace, that the people would know God's covenant grace. Look there at the end of his prayer in verses 54 through 61. What do you see there? Your English title uh, subheading probably lays it out for you. After he'd finished praying, he stands and he gives a benediction. See that? This is significant since it's a part of our worship. The way in which we end our worship services is with a benediction. And this is what we see Solomon do as well. The word benediction just means to speak well or or to give a good word. And it's really a, a pronouncement of blessing, a prayerful invocation of God to bring blessing upon his people. 
And it's usually, as we see throughout Scripture, given to conclude the worship service. Did you notice something peculiar there in verse 54? Where is Solomon at the end of his prayer? What's his posture? He's he's kneeling, right? He's low to the ground before the altar of the Lord with his hands outstretched toward heaven. But how did Solomon begin his prayer? Look back at verse 22. How did he begin his prayer? Where was Solomon when he started praying? He started by standing before the altar of the Lord and before the whole assembly. And so so what we're seeing here is really a rather moving detail in how Solomon prayed. He's, He's standing when he began to pray, but by the time this long prayer is finished, we see Solomon kneeling. He's been moved to his knees in prayer, bowed down at the awesomeness of God's presence and holiness and grace as it's made more evident in the midst of this passionate prayer. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of prayer being so caught up in who it is you're praying to? The weightiness of God's glory, the immensity of who he is, that it drives you to bow down low before him in prayer? And and consider how striking it would have been to witness Solomon, the king of Israel, who is now kneeling bowing himself low before the greater king of heaven and earth. At the very least, this intimates the absolute focus Solomon has upon God in his prayer. This isn't just another formal prayer, is it? This isn't just another thing to do in this religious service to say, look, here we go, we can check off this box on our worship service list of duties. No, Solomon was praying. As the book of James puts it, he prayed prayerfully. How often do I need to remind myself in the midst of prayer, when someone's leading in prayer, to not get distracted, to not lose focus, to not let my mind wander as it so often wants to do? And what does that say about me? What does that say about us? Is this prayer just another thing to do in our Sunday morning religious list of duties? Or do I really believe that I'm approaching the throne of grace? That in prayer I am coming before the mercy seat of the living God. Oh, friends, that our hearts and minds would pray as we see Solomon pray here. That's really the focus of Solomon's prayer. He's beseeching the Lord in light of God's covenant faithfulness and his covenant presence to always have a listening ear towards his people. Look there in verses 27 through 30. But what will God indeed, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And then seven times in the rest of the passage, seven times in light of different situations which signify God's displeasure, seven times Solomon asks for God to still hear their prayers. It's as if Solomon is aware that God's attentive ear actually might in fact be turned away if Israel is given over to disobedience. So look there in verse 31 and 32. 
If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act. Look at verse 34. Would you then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel? Look there at verse 36. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Look there again at verse 39. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know. Look at verse 43. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you. You can look there at verse 45. Then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And then finally look there at verse 49. In light of the most extreme example of God's displeasure, when God's people are taken out of the covenant land of Israel and they're separated from God's presence by exile, if the people pray, well, verse 49, would you then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause? And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. Friends, Solomon is here leading in corporate prayer and he's doing so as he rests upon what God promised through Moses on Mount Sinai that God would be that covenant God. But his confidence is also bolstered here based upon the mediated presence of God in the temple at Jerusalem, Mount Zion. It's these two old covenant mountains, Mount Sinai where Moses was and Mount Zion where, uh, where the temple is, these two symbolic pillars of God's old covenant upon which all their religious confidence rested. All I want to ask is, do we not have a more sure foundation than they? The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. No, the hour is coming and is now here, says Jesus, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. To which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, our foundation is Christ crucified. And Christ risen from the dead. And Christ now seated at the right hand of the Father who intercedes day and night on our behalf. Friends, if you're here this morning and you do not know the risen Christ who has died upon the cross to take your punishment, would you go to him now? Would you confess that he is Lord and Savior? And if you pray to God asking for Jesus to be your Savior, Father, the Father listens to you as a Father. He no longer looks at you as a judge, but He accepts you righteous in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our better Solomon, who leads us as people in unceasing intercessory prayer. He stands at the right hand of the Father, daily, night and day, interceding on our behalf. Jesus is our obedient mediator who in his own life and death has secured for us all the covenant blessings of God our Father. Jesus is the better and more perfect temple, the fullness of God dwelling in man. And by his spirit and in union with him by faith, we, the church, are also his temple. He, he, he dwells in our midst. We are the body of Christ. 
that as we come together to pray as a gathered body, and as we pray in his name, we pray in the confidence that in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. In Christ, our prayers rise to heaven unhindered. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The, the veil in the temple has been torn in two. Jesus has bridged that unfathomable distance between heaven and earth. And so when we pray, we pray in Christ. And in Christ, our prayers ascend mightily to heaven in an instant. In fact, friends, I'd argue when prayer, Christ brings heaven down to us. Oh, that we would cherish and go boldly to God in our corporate prayer. It's our duty as we've seen throughout Scripture. But I pray that it would more and more be our chief delight. Let's pray.